This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by Dr. Yehuda Kurtzner, who's the president of the Shalom Harbin Institute of North America. Yehuda is a leading thinker and author on the meaning of Israel to American Jews, on Jewish history and on Jewish memory, and on the questions of leadership and change in American life. Yehuda received his doctorate in Jewish studies from Harvard and an MA in religion from Brown as an alumnus of both the Bronfman Youth and the Wexner Graduate Fellowships. And previously, Yehuda served as a faculty member at Brandeis, where he held the inaugural chair in Jewish communal innovation. Yehuda, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. So I am so glad that you chose Jonah chapter four, because there's a term in boxing, pound for pound, that we use to compare fighters across weight classes. And I think we can adopt it to sacred writings or any literature and make it word for word. And word for word, the greatest book ever written, I believe, is the book of Jonah. It clocks in at the size of a newspaper column, 1,300 words, and we've been studying it and are perhaps only beginning to discover it 2,700 years later. Yeah, it's an, it's an incredible book. And, and one of the things that I love about it is that almost all of the drama that most people know about the book takes place in the first chapter and you're done with it by about verse 10. The whole business with the fish, which is, of course, the most famous part of the book of Jonah getting swallowed up by the fish. And there's not even a whale in the story. People talk about Jonah and the whale, but there's no whale. It's a great fish. It's just a giant fish. But that whole business, that whole business is done rather quickly. And then you get three more chapters to actually get to what I think is the meat of the story. Right. And so um, you chose chapter four to discuss, which is the fourth of four chapters. It's the fourth of four chapters, the shortest of the chapters. And um, so just to, to set the scene a little bit. So let's tell this story of the first three chapters so that we set the scene for the fourth. God comes to Jonah as God does to various prophets and gives very clear instructions. Go to the city of Nineveh, tell them that they have to repent. I think they have three days to repent uh, and the city will be destroyed. Jonah doesn't want to do that. The Bible doesn't tell us why Jonah doesn't want to do it. I think there's a good read. The good guess is that Jonah is a peoplehood guy, knows that if Assyrians who have been predicted for a long time actually repent, then God can use them as the blunt hammer by which to destroy the Israelites. We can kind of deduce that from the story, but Jonah doesn't tell us the reason why he doesn't want to obey God's commandments. So it, it kind of opens up the possibility that Jonah is just lazy or thinks that he can kind of escape God's vision. Very interestingly, like all great Jewish texts, it leaves it to us to conclude. It doesn't give us the answer. It gives us the question. And, and here we are talking about the answers almost 3,000 years later. That's right. And I, that's why I think it's a generous reading of Jonah to say he's not trying to run away. It's an interpretation. Um, but it's a generous reading to say that he's actually looking out for the political future of the Israelites, and he's scared of the Assyrians coming to destroy them. So he runs away, he gets on the boat. It's actually a great exchange in the first chapter where the sailors are the ones who realize that the reason why their boat is now tossing and turning in these turbulent waters might have to do with this guy who's now sleeping in the on the ship, Jonah. They, uh, to their credit, are kind of really dialed in religiously. <laughs> they're praying, they're screaming to God, and they essentially throw Jonah off as, a, as an offering. And they are right, the waters cease their turbulence. And that's the moment when Jonah gets uh, swallowed up by this fish. 
The second chapter of the book, which is kind of the most, in some ways, theologically significant is Jonah's prayer. Not quite his repentance, but his prayer. He does not repent. He doesn't repent, but he basically, he locates himself in the belly of the fish or in the belly of the whale as is kind of colloquially thought and really prays about being stuck, being lost. It's a brilliant prayer from a knowledgeable Jew. I believe he references something like 28 Proverbs in a very short prayer. And then God vomits him out of the fish and he ends up, uh, luckily for Jonah, on dry land. He winds up on dry land, and then chapter three starts, which is amazing, by kind of pretending as though this whole drama hasn't happened so far, and just starts and says, and lo, the word of God to Jonah came a second time. The story literally begins again. That whole business has happened, and this time Jonah effectively obeys the instructions right away and says, "Go." To, God once again says, go to this great city of Nineveh, call them this declaration um, that I've told you about. Jonah now walks into the city. It says, the city is so large, it is the, the length of three days walk across. And, and it reminds us of kind of the, the size and scope of the difference between our civilizations and ancient civilizations. Um, but that is actually a great ancient civilization. Jonah walks into what is essentially one third of the way into the town, walks one day into the town, says basically one phrase, says basically in 40 days, Ninfa will be destroyed. Five words, five Hebrew words, right? That's right. Talk about economy of language. That's all he has to say. Or prophetic sabotage. Like another question, which is not for today, is does he want to succeed in his prophecy? Crazy guy comes into town, says five words, and what are the people going to do? His expectation is probably not that they were going to do what they did, which is have a mass repentance. Oh, that's interesting. So you think he's basically mailing it in when he says these five words? I think it's prophetic sabotage. I think he does not want the Ninevites to repent because he does not believe in what the Protestants will much later call cheap grace. And sure enough, one thing we know, and we'll probably get into this in your discussion on chapter four, but but one thing we know about Nineveh is we know from the story they do repent, but then we know from history that they resume their role as the evil empire of ancient times and destroyed 10 of the 12 tribes. And then God himself in the book of Nahum later ends up destroying the Ninevites. So, so you're saying basically it's cheap grace in the sense that he, he doesn't really want them to repent precisely because he knows that they're ultimately terrible? That he knows they're going to give a, a quick repentance. They're going to do what they did, say they're sorry, put on sackcloth and ashes, and then resume their evil ways, which we know from the historical record and the biblical record in the book of Nahum is what they did. Yeah, well, what's complicated about that is the theological implications that God needs them to repent in order to become the blunt instrument to destroy the Israelites, and that God ostensibly knows that their repentance, that becoming the blunt instrument to destroy the Israelites is in God's interest, right? God needs them to be the punishing instrument. Does that make them therefore good or evil in the process of this repentance? I think it all depends on what one views about God and free will. I mean, I I think Jonah was probably proven right in the sense that he said this repentance is not going to stick. And from the historical record, it doesn't stick. And the consequences now, I think Jonah's mistake is not arguing with God. Right. So he's not the Genesis 18 Abraham of like actually arguing back. Exactly. Or the Moses of Exodus, I think 32, where he doesn't argue with God. Instead, he tries to run away from God, which is a failed technique. He should have taken it right to God and said, they're going to repent. It's going to be totally fake, and they're going to resume their evil ways. They're going to destroy the entire northern kingdom, and then you're going to end up destroying them, which is what happened. But we don't know. All we know is he says these five words, and they all improbably repent. And then the word comes to the king, and he repents. And then he tells the animals to repent. 
Yeah, and the animals put on sackcloth. But which is, by the way, one of the giveaways. There are quite a few of them in this text that the whole thing is a satire of, of the prophets and the works of the prophets. And, and one of them is that, number one, the big giveaway that this is a satire is that unlike every other prophet, you know, after Moses, the prophet speaks and the people listen. Although actually even Moses wasn't particularly listened to. The whole, the whole idea of the prophet is that the prophet sees things in the world that others can't see, hears the voice of God that others can hear, um, is desperate, is hanging in this precipice and this balance between the people and what they're supposed to be doing and doesn't get listened to. Prophet is a social outcast. So the idea that Jonah is actually the only of one of these prophets who people actually listen to is kind of a tell that this is, I don't want to say a mockery, but a satire of how prophecy is supposed to work. I think you're absolutely right. So it's certainly a satire. So the word great, as in great fish, is used 14 times in the text, which makes the use of the word great, that word is about 1% of the text. So which is an enormous percentage for any one word to be showing that the word great, it's, it's a satire. It's like everything's magnified. Everything's great. He's the most successful prophet in the history of the world, the most successful conceivable prophet. He's also the only prophet that prophesies to the Gentiles. And it also, it again, illuminates what his own anxieties are about being an Israelite. It's not just he doesn't want to prophesy to the, to the Gentiles. It's that his prophecy to the Gentiles has these ramifications for his own people. It's a horrible position to be put in. And we'll see this in chapter four, where he really laments his existence. And in some ways, it's rooted in, why are you making me do this terrible thing that runs counter to my, all of my instincts as a prophet and as a Jew? Right. So book three he makes the prophecy, the five-word prophecy, whether it's prophetic sabotage or something else, he makes the prophecy, it becomes a spectacular success. In book four, is he happy with his success? Great. So book four, which is my favorite chapter in, in, in the whole book, and is a book in and of itself. The chapter opens with Jonah is really angry. This whole thing is making him upset, uh, and he prays to God. And here, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Mark, where of why doesn't he argue with God? And the uh, language that, that he would know to use to argue with God from Exodus 32 is the 13 attributes of God, which Jonah now uses in verse 2 to say this to express his anger, which is, you know, I told you, I, he says, isn't it just what I told you when I was still in my own country? Although he doesn't, we don't, he didn't tell to God when he was in his own country. In other words, he, it's like after the fact, he's doing one of those things where you say, if I was in that situation again, this is what I would have said. So we get kind of Jonah's internal monologue now finally said out loud to God, where he's saying, you, God, are a forgiving God. Why have you closed the door? Because I'm filling in the gaps here. Why have you closed the door of repentance to the Israelites by opening up the gates of repentance to the Assyrians? Well, also, when he repeats the 13 attributes of God, when he tells God who he is in God's own language, he leaves out truth. So, you know, one of the 13 attributes an important one, obviously, in, in Exodus was, I'm the God of truth. But when Jonah repeats him, he leaves out God of truth because to Jonah's mind, the God of truth would not let the Ninevites repent. And he leaves it out. I mean, he has the audacity to repeat God's characteristics back to him without, without the big one, but he doesn't have the audacity to argue with him. Yeah. And I, I, again, I don't, I don't know whether when Jonah is reciting these 13 attributes, he's saying, God, of course, I know that you are a God of compassion. I know that you'll make possible this forgiveness. And whether in doing so, he's referencing, I know that if you send me to the Assyrians, that they will repent and that you will accept their forgiveness because you're compassionate, or whether he's actually saying, um, you're lacking compassion for us. You know, you have this compassion for them, but not enough for us. My reading is it's not about us. It's not just Jonah's not about the Jews. He's saying the God of truth would not bring mercy unto the Ninevites. Now, the historical record here is important. The, the Ninevites were the evil empire. When they would have a captive, 
they would cut off both the captive's legs and the left arm so they could shake the right arm of the dying man. They would flay the skin of their captives and use the skin as wallpaper. They would behead the captives and make the relatives wear the crowns of their beheaded loved ones. This was the evil empire. So the story is not easy for us. I mean, this was they apparently invented the crucifixion, the Ninevites in the Assyrian Empire. So this is Jonah knew all this. So he was saying to God, the God of truth would not allow these people to say a few words and to receive the ultimate mercy. So he said to God, I'm not going to dignify you by calling you the God of truth. I think you're right that a big piece of the story is Jonah's indictment of God's behavior in this moment, God's inconsistency to God's own principles. But I think there's another element that's actually going going on here when Jonah is complaining about his own condition, which is not a complaint about the Ninevites or about God's truth. It's a complaint about himself. And this becomes one of the one of the themes, I think, of this last chapter, which is God's desperate need to demonstrate to Jonah that it's not about him. You see, Jonah, one of the characteristics of Jonah that is so broken and so problematic that I think I think this is a morality tale for the for the Jewish people at large, but it's also a morality tale for individuals, that Jonah's a narcissist. The entire experience of the story is run through how he is experiencing it. Even when he's inside the belly of the fish, the whole thing is about himself. Like, how come you have subjected me to this? When the whole story, and in fact, the whole role of the prophet is as an instrument of God's will in the world. Prophets are supposed to remember that. Remember from Jeremiah, Jeremiah gets thrown in the stocks and he says too, like, this is, ter- this is miserable. I hate being in this horrible place, but what am I supposed to do? God is speaking to me. How can I not but broadcast God's words into the world, even if it comes at my own physical cost? Prophets are social outcasts. That's part of their whole identity. And Jonah is obviously a social outcast. He literally gets thrown into the water by the sailors. He's literally a social outcast, but he seems uncomfortable with that role that he's supposed to be serving in the world. It's such a a fascinating conception of him. I mean, I look at him, because what's the one thing we know about Jonah? It says, the Jonah, the son of Amitai. That's it. Amitai, of course, means truth. So all he is is truth. He's the son of truth. Truth and what? Nothing. He's the son of truth. That's his truth through and through. So to Jonah, what he's struggling with, I don't think is as much narcissism as what's the role for mercy along with truth in the world. And for the son of truth, there is none, certainly none for the Ninevites. I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I certainly have. People who are truth tellers are oftentimes insufferable. Which Jonah probably is. And that is one of Jonah's characteristics, right? He is insufferable. Whether it's the name and narcissist, which sounds like too much, the language of narcissism I'm using it is that he has one moral prism with which he sees the world, and it, it's truth, and it's his own, and he's the one who's the arbiter of truth. So his, he is unwilling to see that God has a bigger plan for the world than the one that's available to him. And he's just angry that he's put in a position to actually have to carry out God's vision for the world. That's right. And actually, an argument for, for him being a narcissist was that he doesn't argue with God. It's like, you know, God loves a good argument. I mean, Abraham argues with God successfully. Moses does the daughters of Zalopakad do and the, the men of Pesachsheni do. You know, four examples from the text of people, both mighty and ordinary, who argue with God and they all win and God loves it. How do we know God loves it? Because sometimes he gives them more than what they ask for. But Jonah, Jonah doesn't take it to God because I think it's what you're saying is right, is that he's just in his own head. And by the time you get to the prophets, past the stories that you're describing in the five books about arguing with God, by the time you get to the prophets, there's a different kind of dialogue that emerges between prophets 
in, in all of this literature between between prophets and God, which is sometimes expressed as prayer and sometimes expressed as beseeching. And at least it's dialogue, right? I, Isaiah and the other prophets are in dialogue with God. And Jonah, you're right, basically gets this instruction, hates it, tries to flee from it. And by the end of the story, is basically outraged that he has had to endure this. You know, getting to book four, it's, it's really God's education of Jonah. So, so yes, yeah, so, so let's talk about what happens in book four, because this story is so deep. I mean, one of the dozens of lessons is God doesn't give up on us. God doesn't go up on anybody. If anybody deserves to have been given up on, it's Jonah. But God doesn't give up on him. Instead, God decides to educate him. God does not give up on him. He doesn't get mad at him. And he has plenty of grounds to get mad at him and to give up on him. Instead, he decides to educate him. I, I read that a little bit differently, which is he does try to educate him, but he is mad at him or at least irritated. I read, I mean, this is a, obviously a, a reading imposed by our own cultural sensibilities today, but in verse three, Jonah says to God for the first time, Jonah says it twice in the same chapter. So you talk about a book that has economy of language and still repeats a phrase is kind of extraordinary. So uh, Jonah says to God, take my life for I would rather die than live. Again, we now have a little bit of subtext from the previous line that the reason for that is he can't make sense of the instructions. So given that he can't make sense of the instructions, can't understand God's plan in the world, God is supposed to be merciful and truthful. But as you said, he takes out that language of truth. It's like, okay, forget it. And by the way, I tried to run away. You wouldn't let me run away. Like, why do I have to be around? I don't want to obey these instructions anymore. Just take my life rather than living. And God, I find that is almost a mocking language in, in verse four, where God says, are you really that angry? It has like a kind of satirical mocking quality to it. But not angry. I mean, I, I, so I, if God were angry, like God knows how to be angry. He's angry at Moses. You know, he's angry at the Jewish people and he gets through Moses. I'll just destroy them all and start over with you, right? That's what God says in Exodus. That's anger. But here he's educating them with satire. You're really that angry? You know, I gave you a plant. I mean, the interesting about the plant is Jonah loves, this is before, Jonah loves the plant. So God gives him a plant, which gives him shade. Jonah loves the plant. But the son of truth should have hated the plant because plants don't grow overnight. That's not truth. That's God's love and mercy to have the plant grow overnight. If it was truth, it would have taken years, but Jonah doesn't care. When it comes to him, he's no longer the son of truth entirely. He loves the plant. That's true. He also, um, even if he's the son of truth, you, you start to elicit that he too is a person of compassion. A person who loves a plant has some compassion in them. The love and regard for other growing things and living things that are in some ways dependent on your sustenance, but in some ways not. In other words, Jonah is more complicated as a character than he even has allowed himself let on. But you've skipped over my favorite line in the whole thing, which was, Verse five, Jonah goes out of the city and sits east of, finds a place east of the city and builds for himself a sukkah. He builds a booth. I think this is one of the missed plot points of the whole book. And one of the great rabbinic questions is why do we read this on the afternoon of Yom Kippur? And of course, there's so many themes to why read it liturgically on Yom Kippur, including, you know, obviously this is the one biblical story of repentance. But I, I sometimes wonder whether what we're getting by the end of the day in Yom Kippur is a looking ahead to Sukkot and a suggestion that that previous story took place on Yom Kippur. The atonement story takes place on Yom Kippur, but the story of atonement doesn't end on Yom Kippur. It continues with, you leave the drama of repentance and atonement, and then you go out to the sukkah, and then you observe the world. What's different about the world as a result of that atonement story? So I think the sukkah piece is not, is not incidental. Totally fascinating. I, I never thought about that. I, I mean, I read this. I, I love, it's my favorite book of all time, but I never really focused on four or five or realized that, no, because when you said, why do we read in Yom Kippur? I was going to respond, well, that's easy. It's a great Jewish story of repentance. But what you're saying is actually, that's only half of it. And to the rabbis in the Talmud, in, in Tractate of, of Vodah Zarah, the story of the great vision for the end of the world 
when there's a great reconciliation between the Jewish people and the rest of the nations, all hinges on the metaphor of Sukkot. That's the time of the year, because the Bible imagines in the end of days, all of the other nations will stream to the temple in Jerusalem on Sukkot. It's the festival of the ingathering of all the nations. And the test, it's a wonderful Talmudic text. I know we're, we're focusing on Jonah, but it's relevant. It's a wonderful Talmudic text, which imagines that God, all the nations of the world will say to God, give us a chance to show the faithfulness and the loyalty that the Jewish people faced. And God plays with them and says, okay, I'll give you one easy mitzvah. It's called sitting in a sukkah. And they sit in a sukkah and an eastern wind blows and it's super hot and they get angry and they leave the sukkah and God laughs and says like in some, some deep sense, sitting in the, in the vulnerability of nature and observing the world is the normal condition in which we see how the world unfolds. And that's what Jonah is living in right now. He is observing the, the actual unfolding of the world with a certain vulnerability of nature. So in 4-5, so he leaves the city to find a place east of the city, which I believe is as far from his home in Israel as can be. I believe as Israel would be to the west, so he's at the east. But in other words, he's going far from home to observe, and he makes a booth there. He makes a, And so you think this is a reference to the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, actually? It's impossible to me to imagine that a biblical text would use the term sukkah neutrally. It, even if it doesn't actually mean sukkah, it tells the reader, it hints something at the reader, that something is actually taking place here. So Yom Kippur is over, so to speak, and is now Sukkot in 4-5. And Jonah sits there to observe. I think he's sitting there to observe. He's hoping for its destruction. He knows it's not going to happen. It's just, from his point of view, this repentance is going to be a quick, fake repentance. It's going to end in catastrophe. Whatever, he's observing it. And then God appoints, and this is, a, I think, the fifth time they used, that the author used the term appoint, right? What's the Hebrew for? The vayiban about the plant? Yeah, he appointed a plant. He appointed a, a wind. He appointed a fish. He, yeah. Right. Although the same word can mean to fabricate or to create. So this, there's also a creation language going on here. When I translate it as a point, it could also be he created or fabricated? Yeah, I believe so. So, so God provides or creates this, uh, this plant, which grows over Jonah. And by the way, if you notice, Jonah was sitting in there to observe what was happening in the city but he no longer cares about what's actually in the city. He now is entirely focused on the world around him. This is, again, the place where God is going to educate him about the limits of his own vision. Because even though he's doing what the prophet's supposed to do, which is step back, observe what's taking place in the city, and watch the unfolding of history, understanding God's plan, all he can do is focus on the limits of his own creature comforts. And the plant grows over Jonah, provides shades for his head, saves him from discomfort. You're right. You know, you can almost see God saying, if I were writing a Midrash, which is a Karaite, I would not do. <laughs> but if I were to write a Midrash, I would have God saying, hey, tough guy, I thought you're supposed to be observing the city. And all of a sudden, you love this plant I gave you and you're focused on your physical comforts. That's right. All, all you can see is, is what's happening to you. That's entirely the story that, you, that you're a part of. You think you're supposed to be my emissary, but you've become entirely fixated with your own experience of the world. And then the wonderful thing of verse seven is the same verb gets used, as you said, of fabricating or providing or creating a worm, which destroys the plant. And it's God's right to do so. That's the dance between, as you said, truth and compassion. And, but it also is a signal that the path of the unfolding of the world is more complicated than can be processed theologically by this experience. Like you got a great parking spot and now you're blessing God. And then, you know, somebody dings your car on the way out and now you're cursing God. You might be missing the plot of the story. There might be larger, God may have a larger business plan than can be adjudicated morally by like what happens to you at any given moment. 
And we also see, this is also like a, an Elijah moment. The storm fails, the great fish fails, but the worm succeeds. You know, the little inconsequential creature succeeds in getting to Jonah where none of the great forces of divinely ordained nature even came close to working. Yeah, that's right. And then you get the, the, the punchline of the story, which is God says the second time, and again, in this chapter, are you so aggrieved? But this time, it's not just aggrieved about your condition in the world. Are you actually so aggrieved about the plant? Jonah falls into the trap, the rhetorical trap that God has set for him by saying so deeply again that I want to die. So what were you more aggrieved about, Jonah? Were you more aggrieved about your, the place that you are in the world and God's mercy? Or were you more aggrieved about the plant? And by say, using the same language about both, Jonah betrays that he is way too focused on his own piece of the story than he is about his job in the world, which is to understand that God's plan is more transcendent than he's capable of seeing. And, and this prompts God's closing speech. And it, this is part of the most amazing parts of the book is that God gets the last word in the story. And there's no nar- the narrator doesn't come back to round up the story. God gets the last word. But as uh, my friend, Pastor Paul Osteen points out, the last word is followed by a question mark. So the story ends with a question. And stories don't generally end with questions, but this story ends with a question. Do you, as a reader, you know, it's just like two different reading instincts. One is to say, okay, the story ends with a question. Another is to say the story is an invitation to the reader to answer that question. Absolutely. Right. So, and, and I think in this context, when God, because I don't think this is a straight question. I think it's a rhetorical question. I think it's a question. The question is, you cared about the plan. You didn't work for it. You didn't grow it. It just appeared. And I shouldn't care about Ninfa. Of course, I don't care about you, Jonah. I provided the plan for you in order to show you that when you constrict theology to your own four amo, to your own four cubits, if that's the world that you see, you miss a much larger unfolding of history that I am party to and you are an instrument of. This could be a rhetorical question, but the fact that it's a question, I think... It may not be asking us to answer that, but it's asking us to answer lots of other questions aroused by the story. In other words, what this is saying is like, there's no bow that's wrapping this up. We're, we're now like, you have the moral and you can go home and teach your kids. Like, this will have to be unpacked for millennia, which is why it ends with a question, because it teaches us that we're going to have to keep answering. But I think your interpretation here is so intriguing in that with God's final response to Jonah, because perhaps the great theological sin is God tells us that we're created in his image. But the mistake that so many of us make all the time is creating God in our image. And that's kind of what you're saying Jonah does here. That's right. Jonah assumes that his moral understanding of the world and his, uh, his understanding of his own sphere of responsibility of the world requires God to act in particular ways, that when God doesn't, it's really annoying, so much so that Jonah wants, is so aggrieved and wants to die. I think that the big idea here is that there's a kind of a gateway that's being introduced for us of kind of to a post-prophetic theological world of, you know, one day there aren't going to be prophets, which we, of course, know happens by the end of the Hebrew Bible. There aren't going to be prophets anymore. And the prophets are the last intercessories that we have between our actions and what God wants of us in the world. And by the way, they mostly fail. We wind up shaping our world the way we want it to be, oftentimes to God's great sadness and frustration. And the big lesson that we get here by the end of Jonah is God is going to continue with some plan that's just going to be more unavailable to us. We want to not fall into the trap of the Jonas of the world who think that the way in which we can understand God's plan is by parsing out single individual trivial things. I got rain today or I didn't get rain. Definitely that. And also by when Jonah restates to God the 13 attributes, but leave out truth, he's just defining God in his image. 
That's right. Picking and choosing. I need God to uh, operate a particular way. Which is a great theological error, is we, we pick and choose. And when, what Jonah's basically doing is he's saying to God, I'm not created in your image. You're created in my image. In other words, my image, I'm the son of truth, and therefore you're the God without truth. Right. And God's great insistence at the end of the story is, I'm not really accountable to being in the world the way you need me to be in the world. <laughs> I'm, not account- I'm not accountable to you in that way. And you got so excited about being provided for, right? Um, in contrast to the fact that what I actually needed you to do was to be my instrument. Provided for undeservedly. This is classic grace. Jonah did nothing to deserve the plan. He just sat down and got the plan. In other words, just God's love, God's kindness, God's grace shined, as we're going to say tonight on Shabbat to our kids, you know, God's grace shined upon Jonah and uh, he loved it, but he shouldn't have loved it because there's nothing truthful about it. It's all mercy. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the rabbis have such a, they really struggle with this whole question of undeserved grace because it, it becomes a little bit of a trap to not actually being able to process when you also get undeserved punishment. If you're so fixated on the undeserved grace, then you you credit God with the good things, but you don't necessarily credit God with the bad things that happen. Or you become so focused on your own experience of the world that you expect that the world to provide for you with that kind of grace, even though, you know, through a butterfly effect, what's happening to you has implications for other people. And the, the butterfly effect explains uh, all book one. Jonah decides that he would like to disobey God and all of a sudden, the sailors are throwing their entire livelihood into the uh, these sailors who were Gentile sailors who had nothing to do with Jonah, who didn't know of him. He bought the tickets to go on the ship. He gets on there there because of his theological problems. Now they're throwing their whole livelihood overboard, all the cargo. That's the butterfly effect. There's something beautiful about the contrast between the attunement of the sailors and the kind of tone deafness of Jonah. The sailors are dialed in that there's something bigger than themselves going on here and that it requires a response from them theologically. It's not always about what you believe in, but it's how you respond in the world. And Jonah is resisting the notion that there's a bigger story than the one he can understand and he thinks he can escape it. Well, I think one of the many teachings in this book, but from one of the teachings there is that Gentiles, even pagans, can help make us better Jews. And that they had a better relationship with God at that time than Jonah did. And they're the ones that told him to pray. They're the ones that came around to the one true God, not as Jews, but we don't convert anybody. They came around to the one true God after they saw God in the world. The pagan sailors are probably the best people in the story. And the Ninvites and the animals of the Ninvites who actually repent, who can actually hear God's word coming from Jonah. But I think that's satire. Animals repenting. I think, I think that's part of satire. But the sailors aren't satire. The sailors actually, I mean, they're very careful in their judgment. It said they drew lots, plural. You know, so they're, they're very careful in their judgment of Jonah. They don't want to throw him overboard, even though it's clear that he's the culprit. They instead row back to shore. It's never going to work, but they, they row back to shore. They're careful. They try to save him. They eventually throw him overboard because he insists. Then they pray to God. These are Gentiles, they're pagans, and they're heroes, which I think is a profound lesson about how Jews can and should interact with Gentiles in the world. We can learn from them. We can be their, they should be our partners, our friends, our teachers, our fellow brethren of God. I think that's right. And I think that it illustrates the contrast that I think the story is trying to draw between Jonah as a hyper-particularist and God as a universalist. God sees the world in a different way. Well, the question is, was Jonah a particularist? The question is, was Jonah a particularist? Because Jonah, he seems to like the sailors. So if he was a particularist, he wouldn't like the sailors, but he seems to get along well with the sailors. I think that Jonah just despises the Ninevites because they deserve it. Because these are people who are cutting off limbs of their captive, playing the skins of their captives, inventing crucifixion, God knows what else. And he, and he says, this is pure evil. He has a, a tuned appreciation of evil and of its consequences. And so it's not that he's a particularist, he just hates evil. 
I understand a particularist a little differently, not that a particularist can engage at all with Gentiles, but that doesn't see the plan of the world as operating through or in relationship to the Gentiles. Basically, a particularist is what's in it for the Jews. And I think Jonah is hyper-focused on that message and kind of misses out that God's version, even going back to the creation story um, in, in Genesis, and there's so many overtones of creation here, because God is creating plants and God's creating animals, uh, and there's interface between humans. I, I think that there's a little bit of a reminder here of God having created human beings in the image of God and not having created Israelites or Jewish people as better or different than anyone else. There's that, that's what I mean by God is kind of schooling Jonah in the fundamental universalism that governs how the world operates. So how do you explain what I would consider book five, which of course is not in the book, but book five of Jonah, which is the book of Nahum, where God himself says the Ninevites are evil and then God himself destroys them. Basically saying, although as a Karaite devotee of shot, I, that doesn't say this in the text, but in Nahum, God was basically saying Jonah was right because God says the Ninevites were evil and then God destroys Nineveh. And the way I see it is God and the Bible can simultaneously believe that the Ninevites are evil and also believe that the Ninevites' repentance is instrumentally important for the destruction of the Israelites. That those things can happen simultaneously, especially if we have the humility by, to recognize by the end of this fourth chapter of Jonah that God's plan is unavailable to mortal man, right? That's like, I don't think we're supposed to come away from the Hebrew Bible by the end of it where it's not a good story, it's not a story of ultimate redemption. It's a story in which the world is playing out a relationship to the Israelites in which we are sometimes on the top and sometimes on the bottom. And God is sorting through the question of how much is that the responsibility of the Israelites to fix and how much is it God's relationship to fix. I don't think we're supposed to read the Ninevites' repentance as pure. I think we're supposed to read the Ninevites' repentance as instrumental. And God is the one who's able to say, I have a plan here you individual person are not going to be able to unpack the totality of it. But we do see the Bible, as we talked about before, God does want people to change his plans. What was Noah's great fault? Noah's great fault was God says, I'm going to destroy the whole world. And Noah doesn't say, I'm going to destroy the whole world and everyone in it. Noah says, how many cubits instead of God? You want to destroy that three-year-old girl? Like you want to destroy her? She evil too? You said everyone's evil. She evil? Really? Tell me how she's evil. That's what Abraham or Moses, as Noah would have done. Instead, Noah just says, Great. You want to destroy the world? How many cubits? And I think Jonah is a, a Noah character in that sense. It's almost a sequel to Noah. And he doesn't argue. He doesn't take it to God. But remember also, even in the Abraham arguing with God story, Abraham does at a certain point stop arguing. But you're right to say theologically that, that what Jonah probably should have done better, what Noah should have done better, is actually not take the plan as it's been presented to them and accept it wholesale, but actually push back on the plan. But it doesn't mean that you necessarily get everything you want in that negotiation. No, but you have to try. I think that's right. And I think, I think chapter four tells us that Jonah never really tried. It didn't make sense to him. It irritated him. He would rather exit from the scene. And we all have this moments of cognitive dissonance where the world doesn't make sense. And so you'd rather just kind of check out from that story. And God's reminded him, if I have a plan that you just don't have access to and, and either argue with me on the terms or just do what I'm asking you to do. But you can't just resist the plan, pretend that it doesn't implicate you and then try to run away from it. That's a great point. I think what, one of the lessons here is God saying you have two choices. You can comply or you can argue. You can't run away. And you're right. So many of us have had the, this experience, not of suicide wishes, but what does Jonah do in book one? He goes to sleep. Like how many people have tried to escape an unfortunate reality by going to sleep? And then you, you wake up and you realize that it didn't solve anything, which I think Jonah discovers too. But Jonah, he tries to escape by going to Tarshish. He tries to escape to sleep and then he tries to escape to death and there's no escaping God. Can't escape God. Okay, you can argue with him. 
Yeah, and the fourth chapter is his last escape, where he tries to leave. He leaves the city to simply observe. I think he's hoping when he's observing from outside the city that things will finally make sense to him, as though he deserves a good ending, like he's watching a television show. And now all of the pieces of the story are going to get neatly and cleanly resolved. And that's when God, I think you're right, mercifully kicks in and says, I'm not going to explain it to you, but I'm at least going to help you understand a little bit why you have failed to understand it all along. Absolutely. Well, Yehuda, thank you for such a fascinating discussion about uh, this incredible book. I just can't imagine who, who in the world was smart enough to write it. I mean, I, people say, did God write the Bible? I said, well, I think you actually made the case for why he did before. It's like, what people would write this story about themselves? It's either written by God or an anti-Semite. But a book like this is just too good to be written unaided by the divine, in, in my opinion. Either it helps us understand how incredible the divine is, or at least it helps us to understand how incredible human beings are at telling stories of ultimate meaning. And either way, this story like this, every time I read it on Yom Kippur and through the rest of the year, I come away just haunted by the, the rhetorical question at the end and challenged by it. And I think that's what studying the Torah is supposed to get us to do. That's, that's exactly right. Now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And uh, he tells a story. He said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. Um, he saved a lot of Jews and then became a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years as a Jewish scholar and as a Jewish leader, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Uh, one thing I've learned is that uh, more people are carrying around more stuff and baggage than we think about them. So the priest was right. Everyone's much less happy than he seems. To me, it's not about happy or sad. It's just most people's baggage is invisible to us because it doesn't look like our baggage. And because most of us do a pretty good job at, at shaping an image of ourselves, which even counter to our own interest of complicated pieces. And that's that's the, the empathy side of the 13 attributes of um, how can we be merciful towards the challenges that other people are, are struggling with that are invisible to us. I think that's one thing that I, I feel like I've learned about people. And the other is, you know, I, I think a lot in my work about all of the changing dynamics of Jewish life, all of the big challenges that we face as an American Jewish community about Israel and about Jewish identity and questions of ultimate meaning. And things seem harder today for many Jews than they may have earlier. But did people always say that? So first of all, I think people have always said that. But I think the big thing that I, I've been thinking a lot the last couple of years is that I don't think human beings have anthropologically changed that much that quickly. And the proof you're right is how, how much we can identify from the Bible. That's right. And that, in other words, that we as readers keep looking for ultimate meaning from the same old text. And the way I like to put it is, you know, with all the challenges that we face, human beings are still searching for community purpose and meaning. Uh, and that hasn't changed. As long as our reading skills continue to be sharp, the same books, the same sources, with a stronger moral dis disposition and with new trends in scholarship, and like we get smarter, we get new tactics and tools to be good readers. But ultimately, if we keep honing those skills, we can actually continue to search and we can actually continue to be rewarded with that same stuff that we all need, community purpose and meaning. And that's actually, I find it, I find it reassuring to think about human beings as not changing from those coordinates. Absolutely. You know, as an observer and participant in, uh, as you just said, someone who thinks so much about the current state and the future of American Jewish life, I'm thinking about it, an episode of The Rabbi's Husband. I we recorded the other day with Jonathan Tobin, a chief of Jewish News Syndicate, and we were discussing the fact that there are no two groups of voters who vote more differently than 
secular or reformed Jews and Orthodox Jews. There are no two groups of people that vote more differently, where one is 80% Democrat, the other is 80% Republican. And you put the Haredi, it's like 95%. What do you make of that dynamic? And what implications does it have for the future of American Jewish political involvement? Yeah, well, we could, I have a lot to say on this for for another time. But uh, I'll say this. I think the big story that we're experiencing as American Jews right now, for which that is data, is the great triumph of American Jewish at-homeness. And it's not about how Jews describe or feel themselves at home. It's about the way that we behave at home. And a Jewish community where American Jews on opposite sides of the political aisle, and sometimes, some ways, opposite sides of like the Jewish behavior aisle, right? We, we're really thinking about our Jewishness very differently. On both sides, we have powerfully united our theological and political assumptions in ways that show that we are at home. If you are out in public as a Haredi Jew in New York protesting the social distancing rules because they're holding you down, you are demonstrating yourself to be an American who thinks that they're at home in America. Because when you're actually scared, you don't operate that way. And I think that the profound partisanship in our Jewish community is a witness to at-homeness. We think that we, think that we can be whole in our Jewishness and our Americanness, and that enables us to be full-throated in our political commitments. And I think it's by and large good news for American Jews to feel at home. I think it's a great story. I think it's one of the most, I think it's an unprecedented story in our history. I think it's bad news for Jewish peoplehood. I don't want to have to be more vulnerable in order to bring back Jewish peoplehood. I think it just requires of us to do a little bit of a different body of work of trying to remember why, even though we have the available opportunity to be as um, partisan as every other American, that there's something that's being lost for the Jewish people by our willingness to embrace that story as opposed to trying to hold something together. Beautiful. So I suppose one of uh, our challenges as the Jewish people, as people who believe in Jewish peoplehood, is to try to figure out how to maintain and strengthen that peoplehood when we have these forces that are kind of naturally, and for, as you point out, some, some good reasons separating it because we feel comfortable, we feel at home, we don't feel threatened. Absolutely. And just to go back to what we were, we were talking about before, the point of a book like Jonah is not to choose team universalism or choose team particularism. The point of a book of Jonah is to notice that, that those big questions have been around for a long time. And the beauty of living a Jewish life is locating oneself in those paradoxes and continuing to study. So, and that's, I think, the, the story for American Jews. I think we have, um, we've become too uh, locked into convenient and neat stories about our identity and our politics, as opposed to being enthralled by the paradoxes. And when we go back to the biblical text, the Torah itself, the five books, conclude without an ending. We're not in the promised land. We're not in the promised land. Right. Well, Yehuda, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about so many subjects, all stemming from the awesome chapter four of the book of Jonah. Anytime. This was a blast. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Well, thanks. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.